Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Good afternoon and welcome. My name is Ajit Varki. I'm the co-director of the UCSD SOC Center for Academic Research and Training in Anthropogeny. And uh, Rusty Gage, my co-director here from the SOC, sends his regrets for not being here, for his unavoidably detained elsewhere. And Margaret Schoeninger will join us uh, shortly. Now, you may be wondering what anthropogeny is. It's actually a very old term, more than a century old, that we have sort of resurrected. And it specifically relates to the investigation of the origin of humans. So our mission statement is as follows. To use all rational and ethical approaches to seek all verifiable facts from all relevant disciplines in a transdisciplinary way to explore and explain the origins of the human phenomenon while doing something that humans seem to do all the time, uh, trying to minimize complex organizational structures and hierarchies and avoiding unnecessary paperwork and bureaucracy. <coughs> in other words, our goals are primarily intellectual. Now, I have to make, uh, give very special thanks to our major sponsors of the symposium, the G. Harold and Leela Y. Mathers Charitable Foundation New York. Uh, Jim Handelman, the director, is here. And to Annette Merle-Smith. And they're supposed to sit in the front row, the special seats, and they've they're sitting up in the back there. <coughs> I also have a very special uh, privilege today of having a special guest of honor uh, who we only managed to get on board after we printed the program. And so I'm very pleased to invite uh, Dr. Bill Brody, the new president of the Salk Institute, uh, to say a few words. Thank you, Ajit. Many people know or think they know what anthropologists do. They may know what um, people in the arts communities do. But if you ask uh, many people what scientists do, they just think about test tubes, but that's about it. And one of the exciting things about science and discovery today is that the things that are going on in test tubes actually have direct relevance to fields uh, outside that. And, and the idea that we could have an assembly of geneticists, neuroscientists, anthropologists, uh, people from the music and arts community all talking together about a common theme was unthinkable. Um, but it is the thinkable today, and I think it's, it's exciting. Uh, CARTA has been going on for, what, IG, 10 years or so, but it's been mostly meetings, uh, closed meetings with the uh, various people uh, from the fields, the specialists, talking to one another. And I thank uh, Jim Handelman who, uh, from the Mathers Foundation who pushed the idea that this really ought to be opened up to the public, and I really support that. So I think we're all in for an exciting treat, and I think we're in for many years of this kind of excitement, seeing uh, what goes on in scientific laboratories coupled with things that are of interest to all of us. So thank you for coming. Enjoy the symposium, and uh, best wishes. Well, now it's my pleasure to briefly introduce the chair of the symposium, Jean-Pierre Changeau, who's from the Institute Pasteur. He's here on a visiting sabbatical both with the uh, Skag School of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences, the Kavli Institute, and with CARTA. Not only is he a Renaissance man in uh, molecular neuroscience, but he's also uh, 
a great uh, appreciator and collector of art. Jean-Pierre is a member of about all the academies you can think about on both sides of the Atlantic, and his achievements uh, go, would go into pages. So I'll simply introduce him to chair the symposium, Jean-Pierre. Thank you very much, uh, Ajit, for this uh, very kind in introduction. And uh, first of all, Mr. President, ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank you uh, for um, the courage, the audace, and the uh, insight you had to organize, uh, organize a symposium, the evolutionary origin of art and uh, aesthetics. And uh, I wish to say that this is uh, uh, one of the most uh, fascinating kind of topics one may imagine, uh, and uh, for several reasons. First of all, because... Uh, uh, the conviction is that um, artistic activity is something which uh, would escape or resist to scientific investigation uh, ever. And uh, I hope uh, you are going to be uh, convinced that uh, this is uh, something which is uh, not true and that uh, indeed art may be uh, 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 amenable to uh, scientific examination. The second um, uh, challenge I would like to say is that uh, in addition uh, we have to um, negotiate uh, the uh, notion that um, uh, artistic uh, activity can be examined within uh, the framework of uh, evolution and um, this is uh, of course uh, a challenge that we have to, to meet and uh, to try to decide what is uh, properly human, what is already present in humans, how does it develop throughout um, uh, child development, but of course throughout uh, evolution um, in the proper sense uh, during the past uh, millenniums or millions of years. So uh, this is of course, uh, as I say, a challenge, but um, I don't think you are to, going to expect any definitive scientific answer to this question. Uh, but I hope that at the end of this um, symposium, you shall have uh, the uh, notion that this is indeed a solid program of research for the next decades. And um, this will be possible because I think we have uh, different disciplines uh, s interacting on the, this uh, important program. And um, I think uh, CARTA, uh, thanks to uh, Professor Varki, uh, has been specially organized, as he said, to, to meet uh, this kind of uh, exchange, encounter, and uh, I hope uh, progress in the knowledge of uh, this theme on the evolutionary origin of art and aesthetics. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, First of all, of course, I want to express my thanks for the organizers of this uh, meeting and uh, the directors of uh, CARTA and uh, Jean-Pierre Changeux for inviting me here. It's always a great pleasure for me to, to come in San Diego. Um, I, I feel a little bit uh, unfavorized uh, after the previous speakers and the one uh, who is going to uh, follow me because, uh, as you'll see, there is very little evidence of Neanderthal art. Um, but the nice thing about uh, little evidence in uh, paleontology and archaeology is that when there is little evidence, there is a lot of literature. And I think I'll 
been able to put together something about Neanderthal art. Uh, it's a bit difficult uh, for me to speak in general about art, and I think in the course of my speech I'll try to tackle some of the issues that has been already evoked by other speakers, like aesthetics, uh, symmetry, and uh, symbolism. And maybe this is the kind of issues we can discuss about uh, Neanderthals. Um, so just before I, I, I start with the production of the Neanderthals, I want to say a few words about what are the Neanderthals. And actually, this is where probably I would be more expert as I'm a paleontologist. I'm used to work with uh, fossils like this one. Uh, if we look at the uh, phylogenetic tree of human evolution during the last two million years, we see that we have several species, and in the course of the last half million years, the main story is the separation of two lineages, uh, one African lineage which is going to lead to uh, the, our direct ancestors, the, the modern humans, and another lineage which is um, uh, parallel to this one, which emerge in Eurasia and with, which give birth to the Neanderthals. And the Neanderthals are extremely interesting in, uh, from an evolutionary point of view because they share many features with us. They are uh, large hominins with a big brain. Uh, they have many aspects of their biology which is close to us, but they are different. And um, they are the last uh, uh, split point on the, on the evolutionary tree of humans. And this, I think, is what makes them so interesting. Because anything we say about the Neanderthals, somehow it's something we, th we say to define ourselves. Um, the Neanderthals, as I said, evolved in Eurasia. And this is more or less their geographical distribution. We know no Neanderthal in, uh, in Africa. Uh, Neanderthals, I mean, the Neanderthal lineage is known somewhere between 400,000 and 30,000, and we find them associated with uh, lithic assemblages that we call Acheulean. So these uh, um, lithic assemblages with, where we find these nice hand axes, like the one uh, Jean-Pierre Changeux showed uh, a while ago. But most of the Neanderthals are associated with what, with what we call Middle Paleolithic or Mousterian industries. I'm not going to enter this um, aspect. There are a lot of fantasies about Neanderthals. And this is almost inevitable because, as I said, Neanderthals are our sister group. And um, it's very difficult to be objective about our um, sister group. So as you see here, there are many ways to see the Neanderthals. In past, uh, there was a way that was a bit uh, brutish, uh, like this one. But today, I must say, there is an opposite trend developing, which is to humanize the Neanderthals as much as possible, uh, which I think it's as much ex exaggerated as the previous one. Um, for some of my colleagues, I'm afraid Neanderthals are just sort of uh, funny Eskimos who lived 60,000 years ago, and so they had <laughs> bad luck because there was no computers and no uh, internet. But if they would have, uh, they would be here. They would probably give the talk uh, about art. I, I think one of the main difficulties is that we we have really a problem in conceiving. Uh, humans, 
that would not be completely humans. And of course, we know that in the last uh, six or seven million years, there was probably something like 15 or 17 different species of hominins. And these different species of hominins are, had all some pieces of humankind, but none of them were, were like us. And this is the whole challenge of paleoanthropology. This is a slide for Kevin, the, the student that, that uh, uh, was waiting for me here in San Diego. Um, this is, is, is also something to continue on the mode of the fantasies about Neanderthals. Uh, it's, a, it's a bone with two holes that has been described in the literature as a flute. A flute. And, uh, and so uh, people have described this object like the uh, demonstration for the production of music by Neanderthals. Uh, later, uh, it was proved that it's a, a juvenile uh, femur of bear with two holes which have been likely met by the teeth of another bear. And, um, <laughs> but the fact is that it's possible to, to produce some kind of music with that, and there are people who have been uh, really good at, at, uh, at, at doing that. But I also heard people playing symphonies with a bottle of Coca-Cola, and so I'm not very impressed by this kind of uh, demonstration. <laughs> so now if we look really at the at the, the archaeological record, as I said, we have very uh, little to chew about Neanderthal art. What we mostly have is objects like these ones, uh, pieces of bones we are with uh, incisions, nothing like a, um, a realistic uh, picture of anything. And of course, the whole discussion is whether these kind of incisions, they are sort of uh, accidental or if they mean something. Uh, there are some objects which are more, I would say, convincing, like this, um, here it's called a pebble, actually it's a, it's a fossil, it's a small fossil, uh, which is carved with a cross, and this looks really like something intentional and symmetrical. I'm not sure we can uh, prove any kind of aesthetical sense in the Neanderthals with this kind of object, but certainly an attraction for uh, symmetry. And this aspect of uh, being, attr being attracted by symmetry is something that has been commented a lot about Neanderthals, mostly because they produced artifacts like this one, which uh, required a lot of skill to, uh, to be made so symmetrical. And uh, as a matter of fact, we are not quite sure that this would really uh, change very much their efficiency as tools for uh, butchering, for example. But uh, we do have uh, end axes like this one, which are almost perfectly symmetrical. Experts in uh, flint, flint uh, snapping say that it's, it's quite difficult to produce this kind of object. It's a, it's a big investment. It's not easy. Um, and certainly, it, it means something. Um, just to remind you what Jean-Pierre Changeux was saying, symmetry or the attraction for symmetry and aesthetics are two different things. And actually, they are embedded in different parts of our brain. And I must say, with the Neanderthals, probably what we have is a meeting between this attraction for symmetry and a very high level of technical skill. But can we call that aesthetic? I'm not quite sure about that. Um, 
And again, aesthetics, maybe we should not be too impressed with that because we know that we are programmed to mate with symmetrical objects. And not, ju not just us, but many vertebrates are attracted by symmetry. It's a, it's a part of our uh, genome that control that. Another thing interesting about these indexes and, uh, is that there is at least one occurrence where we have here on the cortex, cortex of an index a little fossil that has been apparently preserved by the, the, the maker of this index. So it's sort of decoration somehow, but it's not made by humans. It's something which is naturally there. And actually, in the uh, archaeological record, we have some examples where we see that Neanderthals collected strange objects, things with a special color, a special shape, fossils, for example, special minerals. But again, all these objects are not unmet. Um, they are just found and collected. This index uh, led me to discuss uh, a, a second aspect of uh, Neanderthal behavior, is this question of symbolism, which is a different issue than aesthetic or symmetry. And uh, we certainly have uh, Neanderthal burials. Uh, there are some which are known in, the, uh, in Western Europe, in the Near East, also in, uh, in Eastern Europe. Um, however, these burials, uh, which seems to, be, to have some kind of symbolic um, uh, meaning, are very simple. They are nothing like what we find later with modern humans um, in, the, in the period after 40,000 years in, in Europe or elsewhere in the world. We have burials which are extremely rich in terms of uh, objects, pigments that have been deposited in the burial. We have nothing like that with Neanderthals. We have something which is body-centered. It's just the body which is there. And again, we, we can wonder what's the meaning of, of these kind of, of burials. Interestingly, in this kind of artistic fantasy about uh, Neanderthal uh, burials, you see that the, the artist has uh, drawn a, a sort of club here, buried with the, uh, the, the, the dead uh, person. And um, one of the questions is whether or not we have this kind of objects that has been uh, really deposited in, in uh, Neanderthal burials. And I must say that most of the time, the answer is no. We don't have anything like that. Uh, we just have pits that has been refilled with the sediments uh, which was around. And this sediment is full of artifacts. And it, it's quite common to find artifacts in the, in the uh, refilling of the pit. There is one exception uh, that has been mentioned by Jean-Pierre, which is quite, I think, uh, interesting, is the, the case with uh, Cima de los Huesos. So Cima de los Huesos, it's a site in uh, North uh, Spain, which is quite old. We are probably around uh, almost half a million years. And it's a, a shaft in the depths of a cave about half a mile from the entrance of the cave. Actually, it's quite difficult to, to get there. And in this shaft, about 30 human bodies apparently were thrown. And there is nothing else in this deposit but uh, these human bodies plus some uh, uh, carnivores that apparently fell there by accident. 
the interpretation of the site by the uh, Spanish colleagues is that this is an intentional uh, deposit of dead bodies. They have a, a, a very peculiar demographic profile. And the very intriguing um, thing about this site is that there is only one stone artifact that has been found in this site. And this object that has been called Excalibur is a is again it's an index and it's a very beautiful index. It's an index made with a very nice um, material and we can see probably with this example a case for symbolic uh, behavior uh, in Neanderthal. Now to uh, finish with the uh, different aspects of the uh, possible uh, artistic uh, expression in Neanderthal, there is the, the question of the pigments. We, ha we have, we do have in some sites uh, pigments uh, which have been found. These pigments are usually black pigments. It's uh, manganese dioxide. Um, and uh, sometimes they are shafted, uh, they are shaped in, a, in like, like pencils or they are blocks like that with some, some lines. The problem with this is, of course, we don't know really what they were doing with that. Uh, some people have imagined that uh, they have been used for, uh, for skin decoration, for skin painting. Uh, so these guys here will pretend to be Neanderthals, but you see right away that they are not, uh, although they are trying to do something funny with their mouths, um, <laughs> have rather uh, sophisticated paintings. Uh, it could be something more simple like that. Uh, again, the question is that we don't know if these pigments were used for uh, uh, body ornaments, and we don't know what kind of uh, uh, um, signification had this behavior if it ever existed. There is a possibility that has been brought by some that the pigments that we find in Neanderthal sites or in uh, sites of other groups of hominins were, uh, were used for some kind of totally utilitarian purpose. And for example, there are experiments showing that mixing pigments with some glue um, uh, helps to stabilize the, the glue for afting some uh, lytics, for example. So uh, about 40,000 years ago, uh, we have in Europe the emergence of modern humans, humans that look very much like you and I. And uh, they are known by uh, human remains like these ones. Uh, it comes from a site called Pestera Cuoase in Romania. Uh, there are some um, also um, demonstration of this invasion of Europe by modern humans uh, via the archaeological record. And these humans for sure are going to uh, express some kind of art. And Randy White, I'm sure, is going to show you uh, a, a number of these uh, examples. What's interesting about this, this uh, process of colonization of Europe by the, the modern humans is that it occurs probably at least uh, 40,000 years ago by a C14 uh, uh, calendar. Uh, it's possible that there are industries which are uh, which could have been made by modern humans older in Europe, but we, we, we are not sure because we don't have any uh, uh, fossil humans associated with these um, industries. 
But in a site called Willensdorf in, Austro in uh, Austria, we do have uh, origination assemblages which are close to 39,000 years old by uh, C14 uh, date. And we were pretty sure that the origination was made by modern humans. Interestingly, at the time when this origination developed in uh, Central and Eastern Europe and later in uh, Western Europe, we, we do have other lithic assemblages. And at least in one case, maybe two cases, we know that some of these assemblages that were produced at the time of the development of the origination in Europe were made by Neanderthals by the last Neanderthals. And we have, with the, uh, uh, one of these assemblages called the Chateaubriand, Neanderthal remains found in at least two different sites in France. The interesting thing about these uh, last Neanderthals that were contemporary with the um, first modern humans in Europe is that, first of all, we have uh, overlap in time which might be of several millennia, and second, that they apparently produced body ornaments like the one that the modern humans were uh, making and, and carrying. Uh, there was a lot of discussions about the body ornaments found in uh, one of the two sites I mentioned, Arcis um, um, uh, There was different hypotheses. First of all, the, the possibility that it was a contamination of these layers. but. I would say most people today think that they were, they, they were made by Neanderthals. Uh, they were not just trade or found. Uh, and uh, of course, the, 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 I would say the most likely uh, interpretation of these um, objects is that they were the result of some kind of acculturation of the Neanderthals by uh, modern humans. Um, again, the question about these objects is, uh, it's, it's interesting because it shows that Neanderthals were probably able to produce this kind of thing. It's not so surprising because we know they are very crafty at making objects. But now the question is, first of all, can we call this art? It may look aesthetic to us. I'm not sure it's aesthetic for uh, Neanderthal. Um, and more importantly, the question is, what the significance of this, of this kind of object? If we look on the side of the modern humans, on the side of the invaders, we know that uh, a long time before they moved into Europe, they were starting to use uh, objects like shells, likely to do body ornaments. And these shells uh, have been first described in a site of uh, South Africa called Blombos, but to, now we have the same kind of things in North Africa. In two months from now, I'm going to be working in, uh, in, on the field on a site where we have exactly the same kind of Nasarius dated around 80,000 years ago. And there is, in the Journal of Human Evolution, a new paper that has been published a week ago about other shells like that found in a site 90,000 years ago in Israel. So there was something going on uh, with the modern humans and the body ornaments. And I think, and I want to, to finish on that, that these objects are probably more, again, to put on the side, uh, on the side of the, of the uh, uh, capacities for symbolism in this population more than on the side of aesthetic. Uh, in most of the uh, 
groups of recent hunter-gatherers where we know these kind of body ornaments made of uh, teeth or, or shells, we know that these objects have uh, mostly a role for marking the uh, status of individuals within a group or to identify different groups. And uh, I think this was the main function of, of this in the, in the Paleolithic time also. Uh, clearly, modern humans from the upper Paleolithic had these objects. Uh, it's possible that these objects had the same function in the Neanderthals, but we are not quite sure. In any case, and I want to finish with that, we don't have any example of what we call art in the Neanderthals. Uh, just to show you that I'm not such a, a bad guy, uh, I want to, to, I'm not trying to uh, dig a, a, a ditch between Neanderthals and us, and in fact I, I'm for incorporating even much more hominins and non-hominins into uh, our uh, human family. I, I, I offer you this picture of Mikael, um, a gorilla who lived not far from here uh, some years ago near uh, Stanford. Uh, it's a gorilla who learned uh, sign language and was a, a, a good painter. And he was able to make a pretty decent portrait of uh, his dog, uh, April. Thank you. <laughs>
in the vicinity of 35 to 40,000 when we begin to see the first representations of real world objects in other uh, media. Um, we're here at 34,000 uh, in southern Germany, uh, fully 160,000 years after the earliest members of our species in East Africa. This raises for us as evolutionists a rather uh, impressive question. Um, we're we're 130,000 years uh, before we see these kinds of objects that Jean-Jacques has just uh, shown you. Um, two things emerge from this. First of all, for us as evolutionists, is art a useful scientific category? And I think anthropology um, long ago abandoned the idea that art somehow was a useful, useful science, social scientific category. Um, there's a whole literature in social anthropology that is a critique of art as a social scientific category. Or is it an artifact of the Western tradition, which is the position that I think most anthropologists would take, although by convenience they use the term art. Many of you came here today because you saw art on the program, uh, and I'm sorry to disabuse you of, uh, uh, of, it, of its value, although you can, you're certainly free to disagree with me. Um, most of us in paleoanthropology talk rather about symbolic representation, which is a, a mouthful and it's not as interesting as art and it doesn't trigger all of that passion in our brains that art um, does. Um, is it a less ethnocentric, uh, ethnocentric category? Maybe. Um, is it a cultural invention or is it mandated by hard wiring? Of course, this is the question that comes out of uh, the fact that uh, anything that we're willing to call art shows up 150 or 170,000 years after the first members of our species. Um, what is the relationship between hard wiring in the brain uh, and the first evidence, the first material evidence for things that we're willing to call symbolic representation? Well, there are a number of ways of thinking about all of this. Um, and I think the record is still sufficiently ambiguous to allow us all to have our way um, in this. Uh, one of them is that, that uh, the evolution of the capacity for symbolic representation uh, was a gradual process over two and a half million years, and the record more or less represents uh, neurological changes that allowed for uh, symbolic uh, behavior. A second is, uh, and a, a far more frequently encountered view, is that this is a very sudden process, and that it occurs somewhere between 100 and 40,000 years ago, long after the first emergence of members of our species, uh, and that it's a rather revolutionary um, uh, development. And uh, finally, uh, a third point of view, which I prefer to adhere to, uh, is that the capacity evolved a long time ago for the kind of behavior that ultimately gets, shows up in the record that, that we call uh, art, um, but that something special was going on in the vicinity of 100 to 40,000 years ago um, that made it advantageous or even desirable to do some of the kinds of spectacular things that we see in caves or that people were wearing on their bodies. And of course, Jean-Jacques alluded to the fact that one of the um, really exciting things in human evolution that takes place in that period um, is the dispersal of anatomically modern humans, uh, ultimately to replace all of these uh, other populations uh, that preceded them. Um, anthropologists like to be old-fashioned and to think in old-fashioned terms, and I, I was surprised actually uh, that no one to this point has used the term metaphor. I'd like you to think about metaphors uh, in a second. Um, but um, the attribution of meaning to things and events in the external world seems to me to be a pretty important uh, part of who we are as modern humans, at least. And it would be nice to be able to see how that plays out um, as we move back through time. But all of you are aware that, that um, there are a whole bunch of uh, processes and concepts 
um, that we need to keep in mind when we think about this very complex package. Um, and one of them is the whole notion of perception, which uh, we know has a neurological, a very important neurological component, but we also know has an extraordinarily powerful uh, cultural uh, component. And I'm here as an anthropologist to try to lend a cultural flavor uh, to some of these, uh, these questions. How is it um, that we construct meaning uh, from material experience? Uh, Carolyn Bloomer is a, was interested in the visual, and some of you have been very interested in the visual, but what about the material? Because we're not always operating um, in, uh, in something that we can consider to be uh, the visual uh, uh, medium. So how do we go from that real world uh, out there with woolly mammoths ro roaming around and people watching them to the one in which, deep in a cave, you find a miniature sculpture, uh, which we recognize as a, as a woolly mammoth. What is that process um, anyway? Um, and how does it fit into evolutionary perspectives? Well, I don't have to remind you how important culture is. Uh, culture, uh, in many ways, conditions your very perception of sounds and smells and other kinds of things. Uh, I do want to give you some examples that are relevant to, um, to our current, uh, the current uh, subject uh, here. Um, and uh, you can read any of this in, in any basic uh, psychology of visual perception uh, textbook. You know that you don't hear vibrations or feel by vibrations in your eardrums. You hear sounds. Um, so you know that perception uh, is, is very uh, deeply involved, and cultural perception is very deeply involved in immediately transforming what you perceive sensorily uh, into some sort of meaningful experience. But how do we think about all this? How would we best think about the relationship between perception and symbolic representation? Um, representing what one perceives in nature, uh, for example. And there are lots of terms that have been used. The, the, the terms that this symposium has, has found useful are art and, uh, and aesthetics. Um, but uh, read, uh, if any of you are trained in art history, you probably had the Jansen textbook. I understand last, uh, just last week that our art history students at NYU st are still suffering through Jansen um, after all of these years. I think it's in like the 17th edition or something like that. And he's been dead for how, I don't know how many decades. Um, but um, how best, what concepts can we forge to understand uh, this record? When does symbolic representation become art? Um, and should we care? As people interested in the evolution of symbolism, should we care? Is art so embedded in our thing um, that uh, we get lost in the fact that it may not have been the thing about the past at all? Uh, and uh, if you've read any amount of ethnography at all, you know that we are actually one of the rare uh, cultural traditions in which there's actually a word uh, for art. Um, and that raises another question. What do we do about cultures that produce things that we call art that don't even have a word for the category? Right. What is this thing, uh, art, uh, anyway? Well, years ago, 50s, George Mills set out to try to define in terms that were appropriate to anthropology the essential qualities of art. And he um, said that there were two approaches to it. One was in its formal organization, which is usually the approach of traditional uh, art history, and the other was in its metaphorical potential. And I'd like to spend just a little time on metaphor, because I think that's really a critical part of what's going on um, here. You can see that Mills was no um, enemy of, of notions of art. He was trying to, to make sense of it, uh, and he described it as controlled qualitative experience. But how do we control? the qualitative experience of others? How do we evoke for them uh, what we intend uh, in something? 
Well, often we refer to this as art, and you can see Jansen uh, doing backflips here to try to salvage the concept even in art history. First of all, a word, um, and then it's art because we call it art, it's an aesthetic object, um, and uh, you can see that this isn't just uh, an issue for art historians, but you can also see, uh, or for anthropologists, but you can also see that he ends up by, uh, for our purposes, uh, placing museums, churches, and caves in the same category. So there's already a kind of um, um, projection, if you will, uh, of things from the Western tradition. These are some of the premises of traditional art history, and you'll be insulted by these if you're an art historian because they're really a traditional art history. Um, I don't know why we get that version at NYU, but, um, but, but we do. Uh, and it's much more about appreciation and connoisseurship than it is about about real uh, art history. But you'll recognize all of these things, that art is about genius, it's about urges, um, it's about fulfilling innate needs. Um, and all of these remain to be situated. Some of you have tried very nicely, I think, to situate these in the brain, and that's, that's, that's great, we should be doing that. Um, but traditionally, none of these things have been situated in a way that makes them really appropriate to a scientific uh, approach. And then, of course, there's all this stuff about different categories of art. Um, craftsmen make, artists create, right? You've heard that one before. Fine art or pure art is to be distinguished from applied art. Well, what are our Paleolithic people doing? What are those Chauvet people doing? Are they doing fine art? Are they doing pure art? Are they doing applied art if, they're, if it's magic? Um, or is it just craft? And what are those pierced teeth? Um, if they're jewelry, are they art? Do we care about them then? How do we include them in our uh, approach to things? Um, just an example from Jansen. I always pick on poor Jansen. Um, I should probably pick on living people because they can stand up for themselves. But um, Jansen spent a lot of time writing about, not a lot of time, he spent a page and a half. Um, <laughs> well, you know his book. Um, writing about Altamira. And uh, this is a very famous uh, image from Altamira that he wrote about. And this was what he wrote about it. Um, using terms like wonderful wounded bison, dying animal, collapsed on the ground, vivid, lifelike, keen observation, assured vigorous outlines, subtly controlled shading, bulk and roundness, power, dignity, agony. Um, this is a 13,000-year-old painting uh, to which, which is being made to carry an enormous amount of subjective baggage. Right? And, and I don't mean to pick on him, I just mean to... to um, to give a sense that there's a very real danger in, uh, in being affected by places like Altamira in a way that simply allows us to fulfill all of our own cultural uh, expectations and assumptions. Well, this is the real bison from Altamira, and this is its context. And, of course, what uh, uh, Jansen doesn't tell you is oh, a whole bunch of stuff he doesn't tell you. You don't want to read all this, but he tells you, doesn't tell you a whole bunch of stuff but including the fact that inserted, that, that first of all, the bison is part of a panel with uh, 27 other bison, uh, but secondly, that in and among the animals, the painted animals, are more than 70 engraved animals that are not the same species as the ones that are painted. Right? And secondly, it's not on the wall of a cave, as Jansen says, it's on the ceiling, which changes your experience of it rather dramatically. So one of the things that a modern paleoanthropology does first and foremost um, is to try to, as best as archaeology can, contextualize these things before jumping to these uh, kinds of, uh, of, uh, uh, of descriptions that already have interpretation built uh, fundamentally um, into them. Okay, so, well, you know, all know that anthropology is about 
other cultures and that, that we always disprove people's claims by saying, oh, some culture somewhere in the central desert of Australia does it this way, so that proves that it's not universal. But um, in many cases, that argument is justified. Um, and uh, I'd like to just explore a little bit this business of, of metaphor, um, which uh, art historians uh, and uh, Aristotelians uh, have seen as a rather important and, and interesting uh, aspect. And uh, for me, in much of what is Paleolithic, so-called Paleolithic art, much of it, I think, can be categorized as something that is evocative in a metaphorical way. That is, the images make reference to something that is not inherent in um, the, uh, the images. Um, well, some old things by Lakoff and Johnson, which I think are really good, um, that show just to what degree metaphors structure our very understanding or grasping of, uh, the, uh, of the world around us. The most intangible things we grasp by metaphors that refer to the most tangible things. And I suspect that that's what's going on, right? This falls very nicely into one of the, the presentations we had uh, this morning. But I just, uh, I beg of you to seek the relationship between the images that you have here and that, all that emotional stuff that they evoke for you. There is nothing inherent in the image on the upper left uh, that has anything to do with love whatsoever, except in a particular cultural context with a particular set of accepted metaphors. Right? And the same thing could be said of the other image itself. So what's that got to do with Paleolithic art? Well, it has a lot to do with Paleolithic art. What's actually being represented, represented, on the walls of places like Lascaux and Chauvet? Well, it's hard to know. Um, the, uh, it's very clear that certain uh, animal species are being selected for. Um, they most often have nothing to do with the animals that are being eaten. They're animals that are being thought about and represented. Um, we often have the associations of particular species in a very structured way. There are something like 16 horses in this panel, uh, many of them underlying uh, this rather large uh, aurochs. And um, we often overlook, in the, in the sort of dynamism, if you like, of these images, we often overlook um, the, the very complicated business of why anybody would do this in the first place. And it's even more complicated now that it's been shown that in Lascaux, all the horses were done first. They went through the entire cave, painted all the horses, and then they inserted the other animals in around them. So what are these relationships? Well, we have those. Right? Imagine yourself 20,000 years from now coming on this image. Right? Or this one. How's, the, how's that? We have complicated notions about animals. They're metaphors for certain kinds of things, and I won't, I'll, I'll spare you all of the, the sports names of all of the teams uh, uh, in the different conferences. Um, but um, I think we have to open our minds here and to see many of these images not as representations of what they are, but as representations of very powerful metaphors um, that, are, uh, that these cultures are trafficking um, in. Think about it another way. Think about it in the way of what animals actually mean to you. Right? Um, what is a horse? What does this evoke for you? Someone who's uh, a, a representative of the Western tradition uh, someone who's grown up with horses in a particular context, what does that horse actually mean for you? What, can, can you actually see this horse like a Magdalenian 18,000 years ago uh, saw it uh, without the various metaphors and associations we have? I would argue no. Um, I would argue that different cultures, even closely related cultures, have very different relationships to nature that are embedded in the representations 
of that nature, and I would argue that the Paleolithic is no exception. And if you think Americans are excluded from this, well, this is a very interesting. Go online and look for horses and, and uh, uh, conflicts with uh, French culture and all sorts of things, because we have ideas about animals and what's appropriate to eat and what's appropriate to paint and what's appropriate to think and what's noble and what's clean and what's not. Um, and I'm, I, while I may, may not show you uh, these, these uh, fantastic Paleolithic images, I hope I can get you to think about those images in a way that perhaps you haven't thought about them before. Sorry for the profanity, but I thought this was just too good to pass up. Um, we do have animal metaphors that are very profound and allow us to talk about things that are very difficult and complicated to grasp and to talk about, including conflicts between nations uh, and such matters. Uh, again, I challenge you to find this 2,000 years from now and know what the hell anybody is talking about. To accommodate all of this, I have uh, constructed what I call uh, cultural different cultural logics of representation, and I think we can get at some of those archaeologically, but uh, we have to come to terms with the fact that different cultures have extraordinarily different notions about even what an image is, um, about uh, its power. Uh, when we say an image is powerful, that tends to mean that it's moving somehow. But if you were to talk to a Central Desert Australian about the power of an image, that would be the, basically the electrical force that it generated when you touched it and what threw you to the ground. Right? The images actually have physical power. Representations are going to feel very different on the walls if they're constructed out of those different views of, of things. Um, in the San, the southern San from, from uh, southern Africa, the rock support is a threshold to the spirit world. It's not a surface. You're going to put very different things on that, quote, surface if you're thinking of it as a veil that separates you from a parallel spiritual universe. Right. So I think we need to be really quite careful about, about projecting art um, outside of our own particular tradition. And just a final wonderful example from the Inuit in which all representation uh, it has embedded in it the fact that everything in the world is transitory and that one thing changes into another. These are two views of the same image. You can see with, I think, nine strokes, um, this, uh, this uh, Inuit uh, produced something that is, uh, is quite extraordinary, a, a, a caribou in two different poses. Right. And even something as fundamental as realism. There's an old French guy back from the 20s named Georges Luquet who made a distinction between réalisme intellectuel and réalisme visuel. And he did that because certain ethnographically studied people in Africa were much more content and interested in the image at the right than they were in the image at the left. Why? Because it has more information. It's more realistic. You actually see more of the animal. We're into visual realism. A lot of other cultures are into another kind of realism that we need to be careful about not, uh, not ignoring. And finally, let me just show you some very nice uh, images from the Grat Chauvet. Uh, but let's keep something in mind while we're doing that. These are deep, dark caves. What is a cave? We have a certain metaphor for caves, even. Um, and uh, I often say to my students that if we knew what caves were to Paleolithic people, we'd, know, we'd be halfway to knowing why they were down there and why, why they were painting what they were painting um, on the walls uh, 32,000 uh, years ago. A final example, to, uh, uh, I think, to, to make you even more uncomfortable. 
um, which is that uh, in this image has been reproduced in a lot of uh, uh, art textbooks recently. It's from Chauvet. It's a particular piece of a particular panel, and it's often described as a frieze of painted horses. When I taught my uh, uh, prehistoric art class at NYU, I had a person who raised horses in the, in the crowd, and she came up after class after she saw this image, and she said, that's not a frieze of horses. Those four horses could never exist in the same space in real life. They're all doing fundamentally different things, fleeing, sleeping, um, uh, at rest, uh, etc. In fact, it's not a representation of space, of a spatial relationship. It's a representation of time of one horse in four different phases, if you like. Be really careful, I think, about imposing our rules on uh, this distant past. Um, and uh, I, I love this image because um, if you look at these horses, they're the product literally of tens of hours uh, of work by very accomplished people who are preparing the surfaces. Uh, and you may not have seen this image, but it just shows you how wonderfully well-preserved Chauvet uh, is. Every last stroke of the tool is preserved on that surface. And then there's the thing to close about the, the combinations and the associations of things that fall beyond, I think, for the moment, our comprehension. What is the relationship on the same panel between a lion in profile, a bison in profile, and the lower legs and, and sexual anatomy of a human woman? They're doing some very complicated things based upon very complicated worldviews and very complicated values that I think the very notion of, uh, of art makes it too easy to ignore. I guess that's, that's the point I'd like to leave you with, is that, as I said before, I could show you wonderful pictures and you'd ooh and ah, um, but I think it's much more important to begin to think about how to tease something out of these that's faithful to the original people who did them and not simply faithful to the way that we project onto the distant past. I'll leave it there. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.